Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my sick friend, Darcy, with me today. <laughs> How are you doing, Darcy? Oh my goodness. Ready to I, puke a lung out yet? <laughs> oh, I've been ready to puke a lung out. I was sick all last week, which if you listened to last week's episode, you could probably tell. Um, you can probably also still tell that I'm still pretty sick. But um, I was feeling better and I was feeling pretty good. And I've been going to school and work and everything. And so I felt like I should do my normal thing, which is go to the gym. And that was a mistake. Push yourself way too hard, <laughs> yeah. way too soon. <laughs> Your yeah. normal thing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. So I came home and I texted Sarah and I was like, so I did something real stupid. Um, I'm going to be ready to record, but I'm going to have to lay down between like now and then. Uh, so I like turned off all the lights and I just laid down and I was like, okay, the room needs to stop spinning before I can get up and like do this. So yeah. So, so. basically Darcy is laying um, prone yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a stretcher for the whole episode. I've got a, I've got <laughs> a banana IV bag in my IV. Yeah. And I'm just doing fluids. That's the so commitment I, I have said, to this show. <laughs> she said to me, I'm not going to be my usual sparkly self. Yeah, right. And I said, it's okay. I'll be sparkly for all the last. I know, right? I was hoping you would get the sarcasm that I'm not usually super sparkly anyway. But Yeah. <laughs> And like I am, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but I'm going to try tonight. I'm going to be extra super sparkly. You'll carry the load for both of us. I will. I will. I'll do Sweet. that. Um, let's jump right in because I've got some interesting stuff to talk about tonight. Some kind of unique stuff that's okay. very exciting and interesting. So first of all, we have this update with the Photos Dulos case. I don't know if you guys have heard, but evidently they have dropped the murder charges mm-hmm. against Photos Dulos after his death. Against the wishes of his defense team. Interesting, right? That is very interesting that they'd be so gung-ho to still defend him when they don't have a client anymore. Yeah, this article came out on NBC News this last week, and I immediately texted it to Darcy. Um, Alicia Feinstadt is the author. A a Connecticut judge decided Tuesday to drop the murder and kidnapping case against the late Botus Dulos over the objections of his attorney, who said he wanted to pursue a trial to... to prove that his client did not kill his wife. Dulos, a Connecticut real estate developer, died January 30th at a New York City hospital two days after attempting suicide at his home in Farmington, where he was on house arrest. Earlier this month, Dulos, 52, had been arrested and charged with capital murder, murder and kidnapping in connection with the May disappearance of his wife, Jennifer, whose body has never been found. He pleaded not guilty at that time. These two have five children together, Mm -hmm. and they were in a very contentious, drawn-out divorce and child custody battle when the mother disappeared. This case has been absolutely crazy. This chief state attorney, Richard Colangelo, (laughs) I hope I pronounced that right, had asked the judge to drop the case against Dulos because he's dead, obviously, right? Right. Let's not waste more time and money on this. But Dulos' attorney character of characters is like oh no 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 we don't want to do that we have the right to clear his name uh, right uh, but there's, this is such what? BS. there's no it's such bs yeah such bs um he just wants to make it known that he thinks he has evidence to clear Dulos's name and he doesn't want the case to be dropped he wants permission to ask 
to take this to on a he wants permission to seek an appeal over this. Mr. Dulos's memory remains stained by these scandalous accusations, he says, and we'd like a chance to raise them in open court. Whether we get that chance in open, is an open question and remains to be seen, Pat has said outside court on Tuesday. This was not the ending we anticipated in the form we'd hoped. We hoped full well to stand in front of you someday with the charges against Mr. Dulos ended by way of an acquittal. I don't think so. Yeah. Anyway. His team is investigating a theory that Jennifer Dulos was killed by someone else and her husband had no involvement but panicked when garbage bags full of her bloody clothing were dropped in his backyard. Did you read that part? I did not so basically read that he's, part. He's, he's saying that he didn't do it, but somebody else did, and they jumped, dumped all of her clothes and a bunch of bloody stuff in his yard, and so he thought he was going to get framed and... Basically, he freaked out. Obviously. So that is a new strategy from the whole she disappeared intentionally to set him up theory that they were originally going for back when he was still alive. Yeah. So now they're at least admitting she's dead. It's just so ridiculous at this point. Investigators laid out a bevy of evidence against Dulos in multiple arrest warrants. They have his DNA found commingled with hers and bags full of items like zip ties, gloves, cleaning supplies, and clothes. He was caught stuffing these into trash bins in Hartford with his girlfriend. Obviously, we'd shared that story earlier. Around the time that Jennifer Dulos went missing, his DNA has also been found in her home along with her blood. Pattis said Tuesday that he was trying to get his team to work on, with the attorneys of Draconis and Kent Mahini, who are charged as co-conspirators. Both have pled not guilty. Dulos' suicide attempt came after he got word that he was due an emergency court hearing to address a discrepancy with the $6 million bond he'd posted. So... Essentially, his attorney is like, oh, my client didn't do anything. We were going to clear his name. I was fully confident we were going to do that. And his committing suicide was just because he was so sad and not because he was basically about to get the carpet yanked out from right. him because the foreclosed properties that he had used as bond. Right. Oh, yeah, because that was the whole thing. He also technically didn't own those properties or something, right? Well, no, I think, well, they weren't owned anymore. They had been foreclosed upon. But what's interesting is that his story has just changed way too many times. Right. And for him to suddenly say, oh, well, I was set up by someone who killed my wife and threw a pile of bloody clothes in my yard is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, how often does that happen in real life, that somebody else kills your your wife who you're going through a contentious divorce with and throws bloody items of clothing from her murder in your backyard. I think I can honestly say that would be the first time that I'd actually heard of that happening. Just ridiculous. Yeah. Come on. And, and this is the other thing what's preventing his attorney from playing this case out in the public. Like they're not going to court anymore, but why can't he just release all of this to the media and like, Defend Let him them in the court of public opinion. Free him. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I mean, exactly. there's nothing that's holding him back from doing that. Let's not waste any more court money, attention, and time on that. Courts right. are already bogged down with frivolous lawsuits. They don't need this crap to clog them up further. Right. Anyway, I have very strong opinions about that, if you can tell. Yeah, this sounds like, like an, at- <laughs> an attorney who just needs to constantly be in the spotlight. Yeah. Clearly, he is definitely that guy, the one that you just want to punch in the face. Right. Um, (laughs) So on to interesting topic that I found secondarily speaking. Um, We'll keep you guys posted as the Dulos crap sort of weaves its way through evidentiary information and hopefully finding Jennifer's body at some point. I don't know. Now that Dulos is gone, I don't see them finding her body ever. But anyway. 
I mean, maybe they'll stumble upon it. Maybe somebody will stumble upon it. Who knows? But I feel I think he's buried it under cement in one of his building mm. projects, and I don't think we're ever going to find it. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of hopeful that he maybe told the girlfriend or something. And I would like to think that, that that possibly you know, happened, but I doubt it. But yeah, I doubt it. probably. Um, next case. So evidently, there is a scam going around now called sextortion and it's an email scam thing uh that's not new um yeah so clearly it's not but a lot of people are falling under the falling into this trap yeah lately evidently so i found this article shruti shecker wrote it and it's about these sextortion email scams and it originally came out on yahoo finance but here it is So a lot of us are receiving sextortion emails demanding cryptocurrency and threatening the release of explicit videos. And two victims say more education and outreach is needed. And I don't know if you've ever received any of these emails, but let me get into this a little further. On February 13th, Karen Baines was sifting through junk mail when she noticed an email titled, I know. I know there's a lot of scams. We get calls and emails, but the first line in this email I saw was my password, said the 37-year-old woman. That's scary. The email... Yeah, the email said Bain's computer was infected with malware, giving the scammer access with malware. Is it malware, malware. or malware? Malware. <laughs> the email said Bain's computer was infected with malware, giving the scammer access to her accounts, her computer's camera, and the microphone. It said as well, I collected all your private data and I recorded you through your webcam, satisfying yourself, the email read, which was obtained by the news source, obviously. I can send the video to all your contacts, friends, post it on social media, publish it on the whole web. The scammer demanded Baines transfer $900 in cryptocurrency immediately. So according to these fraud divisions that work in the U.S. and Canada, the cost of mass marketing fraud, fraud by phone, internet, mass email, and email is approaching millions and millions of dollars. And this is a 30 to 50% increase over the last three to five years. Jeez. Uh, luckily, this woman called the police first, who advised her to change her passwords immediately and monitor all of her accounts. What is really kind of baffling to people is that these emails have the real password included for these email accounts. That's really scary. So when you see your password sent to you from somebody else, an unknown person, you don't know what it is, what they're doing, what they're monitoring, and you feel scared. Yeah. But oh, yeah. luckily this woman was smart enough to do a Google search of the, sca- the type of scam, and she did her due diligence and could tell that there wasn't enough information on this out there, and she wants to educate people about this. Because... A lot of people evidently are falling for the scam, maybe older individuals who may not Mm -hmm. know for certain that this sort of a thing exists. So another thing that's happening is, is people are doing a lot of robocall stuff as well. So they'll call and they'll say, you know, can you hear me? And when you say yes, then they use that recorded as your (gasps) consent to sign you up for all kinds of different subscription services. Oh, so they tell you just be very, very vigilant and careful about it. If somebody like a robocaller calls you and asks you that question, say, oh, I can yeah. hear you. Don't say yes, because scammers are using that as your consent to do whatever the hell they want with your personal wow. information. But anyway, I mean, this is just super, super interesting. Evidently, there are enough people falling for these scams to keep these mm-hmm. people in business. And it, it's, it's frightening. I personally wouldn't fall for it, but... 
Surveys say that 60% of millennials wouldn't know what to do if somebody committed fraud using their name. And 43% of millennials have accidentally clicked on scam email or text messages. So that's a big percentage of the population that's falling for this stuff. And, you know, for instance, the emails you get from Apple that say your account's locked and you have to verify in order Mm -hmm. to unlock it. You've yeah. seen those, right? I never click on the link. Never, ever, ever, ever yeah. click on those. Yeah. It's just ridiculously asking for trouble. But what I do if I get, because I get stuff like that from school too, and it'll be like, your password's expired. And that does happen. And like, we have to change our password every however often. But you also get like the trick emails trying to tell you to click yes. on the link. So what I do is I like close that email and I'm like, I go to the school yeah. website and like I go through that way and the, or go to Apple or do whatever. And if I don't get a message there, then I'm like, well, this was clearly not like an actual thing. I just like don't ever click on the link. Go to the actual source of the of the information yourself to verify that. Is that is very very smart advice. Yeah. And the second thing is, if you do um, get an um, an email saying that um, you get a scam email like this with your password on it, police and law enforcement say change your password immediately. Mm-hmm. Okay, change it directly through your password through your email source, number one. Number two, it's a smart idea to cover up your webcam yeah. just in case. Put a Band-Aid over it, a little piece of paper or whatever, because there are people who can hack into your computer, unbeknownst to you, yeah. using a different software, and look at you. And not that anybody's sitting in there masturbating in front of their computer screen, which I, I don't think people do that. Maybe sometimes, but <laughs> I don't think the majority of us do that, and I don't think the majority of people that are getting these scam emails are doing that. But... Just to be safe, cover up the camera on your computer screen. Yeah, I mean. Problem solved. Yeah, you can take like a little piece of electrical tape or something. Like they sell little covers for like 50 cents or something. You can buy a pack of them for a couple bucks and you can cover up like your computer and like your work computer. You can cover up, you know, it's just smart to just whenever you're not actually using the webcam. Like we are using the webcam right now. So like my my camera is like. I have a little cover and it's like slid over to uncover it so that we can see each other for talking. But like as soon as we finish this call, like I'm going to close it back up and like, cause you just don't want it out there. Cause there's like a little indicator light, you know, that says, Hey, you're using the camera. But if somebody hacks into that, they don't have to, the light doesn't have to come on. They can still be using your camera without your computer. Same thing with your phone. Exactly. Always set it face down. Like you don't need to be looking at it to see messages, but always set your phone face down. Yeah. Period. Yep. It's just end of story. Just Less protection. There's, I mean, it doesn't take that much effort, and it just make sure you're taking care of yourself. You get one of those scam emails, immediately delete it. Or yep. make a copy of it and report it to law enforcement. You can do that as well. Yeah. Never click on any links if you don't know the source. But it's surprising that that many people of a certain generation are falling for that. Yeah. And clicking on those things and, like being scammed by it it's in, it's incredible it's interesting that it's millennials because it's usually older generations that aren't so tech savvy that usually are the victims of those kinds of scams right but i don't think the majority of them are using the email and the facebook and the cell phones in the way that the millennials are so the numbers obviously increase with the That's increased true. use of those items so interesting though yeah. I thought it was important to kind of bring that up and just to kind of give people a friendly reminder as to some common sense safety tips when it comes yeah. to your cell phone and your computer. Yep. So main topic for the day, I found this case super, super interesting. There was quite a few articles about it on the web as well. I initially heard the story on Dateline NBC, 
And then I was so fascinated by it that I had to go like research it and look to see what articles there were out on the internet on it because it's got a lot of different stuff going on in here, a lot of twists and turns. This is the case of Marie Singleton. Okay. And she is a woman from Los Angeles, California. This is another 90s case. Oh, so I, we're going to dig right into this. It, it happened in 94 in LA. Ugh. Ace of Base. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I like this case for a lot of different reasons. I like that justice was ultimately served for this person's killer, but it's got a lot of interesting stuff going on in it. So I'm just going to jump right in. Marie Singleton was a mother. She was living in LA in the 90s. People that knew her said she was loving and generous, and she showed everyone around her how much she cared. She ended up having a son as a single mom in the 80s, in the late 80s. Her son's name was Marcus, and she spent every spare second of her time with her son. She was a loving mom, and she took him and traveled with him and just was like a super excellent parental figure for this young man. Um, In the 90s, starting in the 80s and into the 90s, Marie worked for the federal government in Los Angeles, so she had a great job. Mm -hmm. She was very ambitious. She was driven. She wanted to own her own business, and she worked toward that goal. So she was sort of an entrepreneur as well. Um, But she also wanted more than just a career and success in a career. She wanted a good guy in her life that could also provide sort of a father figure type thing for her son, Marcus. Then out of the blue... Marie tells her friends and families that she has met someone and she is absolutely enamored. Everybody is really surprised, but she fell very quickly for a man named Andre Jackson. He was a handsome single father of two and there was instant chemistry between these two. Okay. Now Jackson already had two of his own children, a son named Andre Jr. and mm-hmm. a daughter named Andrea. <laughs> Come on, people. I, I, I mean... Yeah. Settle down with the narcissism. I, I, I cannot handle people that name their children like variations of their own name. It's like George Foreman. Anyway. <laughs> Seriously. Anyway, Marie fell head over heels for Andre Jackson. But, and then at that point, her business-like personality seemed to change overnight. And this was sort of a whirlwind courtship that was love. All of a sudden, she was pregnant. And then they got married oh. in early 1994. All of this happened within a few months. Everybody, including her son, Marcus, seemed super happy. This was a happy couple. And then Marie had another child with Andre, and they named this child Marquise. Okay. Which I just so don't... Marcus and Marquise. I don't understand how that's different from Marcus. Just a different pronunciation of the same damn name. Anyway, <laughs> let's not judge Marie for her <laughs> choice. Was it names. a boy or a girl? It was a boy, another boy. Okay. He was born in 1994, early part of 1994. Okay. At that point, this became a blended family with Andre's two children, Marcus and Marquise. Everybody seemed like they were having a really good time. Marcus loved having a dad for the first time, teaching him how to swim Mm -hmm. and how to ride a bike. And he even took Marcus out on numerous occasions on the back of his motorcycle. He said that having a male figure was absolutely awesome and everything seemed perfect for this little family. Then something changed, as it always does. <laughs> right. These sorts of stories end up on the news, and it's always right. surprising. If we're talking about it, it doesn't have a happy ending. Right. Everything changes Friday, November 11th, 1994. 
On that day, Marie Singleton, wife, mother, career woman, and dependable person extraordinaire disappeared suddenly. The local police were called in, and along with them came the FBI. Whoa. So... Oh, because she's a federal employee. Mm, sort of. Oh, okay. There's more to this story, and it's super interesting. Now, you ask, why did the FBI get involved? Because they typically do not get involved in a missing persons case. If it was a murder uh, case, maybe. adults. Yes. Missing children, they get involved right away. But the reason for this is because Marie worked for the CIA. She wasn't just a federal oh. employee. So the FBI was concerned that there might be some missing classified information involved. Yeah. Because she had a very clandestine private and secret job with the CIA. She told everyone she worked for the federal government and the Department of Defense, but Uh officially she worked for the CIA. So what's this whole business about wanting to open up and own her own business? I think she did, ultimately, when she retired from her government job. I think that she was had that mindset within her. But she worked okay. very, very hard, and she essentially dealt with a lot of classified information for the CIA. She was not a spy herself, but immediately when she disappeared, there were thoughts that there might be some espionage sort of thing going on. Maybe she was a double agent. Maybe somebody mm-hmm. had kidnapped her thinking they could get the information from her. There was just a lot of speculation behind this because people knew that she would never just disappear. Yeah. And that's, I think, what all friends and family say in cases like this. She would never just right. disappear. Not only that, but she left her son, her eight-year-old son, Marcus, and her eight-month-old mm. child, Marquise, at home alone. Oh, yeah. And pe- people that knew her knew she would never have done that. Right. Because she disappeared on Friday night. So Marcus remembered the day very, very clearly. He had had the day off school. He said he sat at home watching TV, recalls his mom coming in up the stairs and saying something to him, and he wasn't really paying attention because he's a kid. He's eight years old, and he's watching TV and not really paying attention. Mm-hmm. Then he falls asleep and wakes up to the sound of his little brother crying. Now, he goes downstairs to try to figure out what's Mm -hmm. going on and can't find anybody. So it's just him and his little brother alone until he hears the phone ring and it's Andre asking about Marie, if she's home yet. Where is Andre, you say? Yeah. (laughs) So he's rushing home at that point, but he had said that he'd last seen Marie around 5 p.m. before he left for his son, Andre Jr.'s football game. 5 p.m. that same day. Yes. He said when he returned home, though, the car was gone on Friday. And that was Friday evening. And she was gone as well. So when he got home from that football game that he was there with his son, Andre Jr., the car was gone. And she was gone as well. Okay. So immediately Andre says he starts to call all of her friends to see if they know where Marie is. And then he gathers his kids and takes them to his mom's house to try to figure out what in the heck is going on. He also tells all Marie's friends that he's looking for her and to please let him know if any of them hear from her. Now, this, Mm -hmm. you got to realize this time period, this was kind of before cell phones were a big thing. So she had a pager and he was paging her and all of her friends were paging her and her mom was paging her and they were trying to get a hold of her desperately, just hundreds of pages and she's not responding to anything. In the meantime, Andre is driving around looking for her and by Saturday, November 12th, 10.30 a.m., she has been missing for almost 24 hours. Andre calls and files a missing person report with the Inglewood Police Department. Okay. An officer immediately comes out and interviews Andre and then starts to talk to the witnesses and starts canvassing the neighborhood. 
Days pass and there is no sign of Marie. Zero. Now, the FBI gets a report several days later. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, they don't normally get involved with a missing person's Mm -hmm. case of this nature. But since Marie worked with communications from the CIA, the government was very concerned that something happened to her for that reason. Mm-hmm. No one in her life, including her close family, knew she was a code clerk for the CIA. No one. She hadn't told anyone. So it was very like... That's pretty typical for people who work in the covert department, though. But, I mean, not even her husband, not her mom, no one. Yeah. And the type yeah. of information that she was handling could be very valuable to the right people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is 1994. The Cold War is still kind of fresh in people's minds. And an espionage investigation is not far off. And it, this case looks like that could potentially be what's going on. So people are kind of paranoid. Yeah. And there are parallel investigations going on in this case. One for her as a missing person and then one for her as a CIA employee. They're looking through the department, shuffling through thousands and thousands of papers to see if any documents are missing. Mm-hmm. Her family starts making flyers and posting them in the neighborhood. Andre starts enlisting Marie's friends and asks them to pass out flyers. He specifically asks them to go pass out flyers in an area called Dockweiler Beach. Okay. And the friends are like, why there? I mean, we need to go all over L.A. and pass these flyers out. And he was like, oh, never mind. I'm fine. I'll go do it then. And they just thought that was a little bit, like, kind of fishy. Mm Mm-hmm. Dockweiler Beach is about eight miles from Andre and Marie's home near LAX. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just as a point of reference. Tuesday, November 15th, 1994, four days after Marie disappears, Andre is at Dockweiler Beach. He is passing out flyers with Marie's information, and we will post, there's pictures of these flyers online. We'll post on social media pictures of the flyers that he was passing out, along with some other pictures from this case, but... He starts going up to random people and passing the flyers out with Marie's information on it, as well as her car, make, model, and license plate number. And it was okay. a gray sob, just for so, point of reference. So the car is still missing. Yes. So this stranger gets this flyer, and he's like, oh, I feel bad for this guy. He told me it was his wife, and I know, you know, I would be devastated too, He takes the flyer, gets into his car, and drives away. But as he's driving away, he sees the freaking gray Saab. What are the odds? He compares the license plate number and is like, oh, my God, that's this car on the flyer. So he calls the police, like, right away and is like, hey, I found this freaking car. Like, this is is a big deal. And the police take the car to headquarters, the Inglewood Police Department impound lot for inspection, And they see that there are two parking tickets on the windshield. The battery has been removed. The Mm -hmm. driver's seat has been moved forward, like when you kind of get something from the back seat and you pull the little lever and push Mm -hmm. the seat kind of forward. Okay, so like it's leaned forward. Yes. Okay. And her purse is in the car as well as a cell phone. And the car is locked, which is unusual because, as I mentioned earlier, the police were like, cell phones were not a common thing back then, and it wasn't... It was a really big deal for people to have cell phones. Did but she Marie have a had cell phone? phone? Okay. She did have she a cell phone in addition phone. to the pager. Yes. Okay. And I am pretty sure it was due to her job with the CIA. The, her purse and the cell phone were left out in plain sight and the sunroof was slightly open. They go to the back and they open the trunk and this is when they find Marie's body. In the trunk? In the trunk. Oh. The body was curled up in fetal position. There is bruising on her face. She's obviously been beaten. And the cause of death is strangulation. 
Okay. Mm. Kind of keep that, keep that in the back of your mind. Um, her credit cards and jewelry are also in the trunk. So police are pretty much at that point, like, Hey, robbery is not the motive here because all of her things of value are with her. So no one took anything. Andre appears absolutely devastated. He tells Marcus that he found that his mom's been found in her own trunk and the family is just, they mourn instantly because they've lost Marie. They're, they're wonderful, beautiful, amazing daughter. Her family comes in from near and far and it's clear that no one really knew about Marie's secret life with the CIA. They knew that she traveled a lot for her work and her job, but they really didn't know what was going on in her life. Right. And it was very mysterious to them. They also know that Marie would never have willingly left her sons alone at the house. Right. Then the family starts to get together with her friends and compare notes, and something is not adding up. Andre, the hubby, is basically where they start to think something's up. He's telling inconsistent stories. He has a fresh bruise on his lip. Oh. And he claims that this is from playing football with his son. Okay. So he's like, oh, this, this isn't suspicious at all. I was just playing football, yeah. and I got hit in, the hel- hit in the face with a helmet. I mean, that could happen. Well, and not only that, but his story keeps changing. Oh. So when the friends and family call, the first time he says, Marie had some drinks, and she wanted to go to Andre Jr.'s football game, and Andre was like, uh-uh, you're too drunk, you stay here. They fought, they fought and she took off. That was story number one. <sighs> that literally never happens. That's never the case. Story number two. <laughs> and an old boyfriend came into town, and she's with the other man. Also... Like, he's telling friends and family that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Third, this is yet another story. He has no idea where she is, but when she gets home, I'll have her call you. Don't call back. Oh. To her family. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm raising a red flag. So in the meantime, Monday, November 14th, 1994, friends notice a big hole in the wall of Andre and Marie's bedroom. Oh. It is super suspicious. It's not like the size of a doorknob. It's not, it's big. It's like the size of a head, a human head. Oh my gosh. And the friends and family had been packing up some of Marie's things and going through her, her stuff and kind of getting things situated. And they found that, and they were like, this is just way too suspicious. They take this information to the Inglewood Police Department, and it's that point that they discover that Andre is the main suspect in this That's case. That's when the family discovered it? Police. Okay. Yeah, the police divulged okay. that information to them, which I, I'm not really clear as to why they would do that. But Maybe they, they like just gleaned um, it from the conversation. Maybe it wasn't explicitly said. I don't know. Maybe it was. I don't know. But to everyone's surprise, there are no arrests made in the case. Absolutely zero. And funeral comes and goes. The family returns to Philadelphia. They take Marcus back with them to Philly, and the aunt is raising him now. And then days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, and months turn into years. Mm. One year after Marie's disappearance and death, an anonymous letter gets mailed to her family. It's typewritten. Of course. And it says the following, that it it is unlikely that the person responsible will be brought to justice. The CIA is stalling. They put this case on the back burner and they never 
offered a reward for any information leading to the perpetrator of this crime. Former colleagues of work have been placed under gag order. No contact with the family has been ordered and someone needs to stir the pot in this. This letter is super suspicious to everyone. They can't figure out why the police or the FBI have not moved. So the letter is basically like, hey, no one's going to catch this person. Stir the pot, get the police moving, essentially. Well, can I kind of interject here? And this is going to sound callous, and I don't mean it to, but it just is. Why would the CIA offer a reward? Like, their interest and the FBI's interest in finding her is to protect their information. It's not... An, an interest in her as an individual. I know that sounds callous, okay, but that's well, why the FBI is involved in her disappearance. Put a pause on that thought for a second. Okay. Because there's more to come. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I get your point. Um, the family immediately turns this letter over to the Inglewood Police Department. This, is, this letter came to them in Philadelphia. This did not come to Andre. It came to her family. Okay. Years pass. And the family calls the police department over and over again. They refuse to give up on this case. And the FBI is actually still working in the background, despite an absolute lack of any evidence of espionage. So they have investigated mm-hmm. this case thoroughly. There's no signs that there's any espionage involved, but they are still working on it, despite okay. the fact that what it looks like on the outside. And the agents within the FBI actually that worked on this case in the beginning are still thinking about her. And they don't want to give up on this case because they know that this woman worked a good portion of her, of her life for the CIA and they don't mm-hmm. want to let this go. They decide at that point in January of 2002 to reopen this case as an assault on a federal officer case. Mm-hmm. See, now that's a reason the FBI is going to be involved. But like there's there's no reason the CIA would offer a reward. Like that's just. Yeah. Like well, the thing silly. is, they were they all had her in their thoughts and they wanted to yeah. find this. They were working right. on it kind of in the background the whole time, but they didn't have the ability to do the things that they needed to do. So we'll get into that mm-hmm. in just a second. But this is eight years after the murder. They are combing through the files and the technology now has advanced much farther than it had at the time that this case was opened back in 1994. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not. DNA evidence and testing DNA back then was in its infancy, which is so weird to me that in the 90s right. that we weren't doing it. Well, we were because remember the OJ trial was 95, 96, but the murder was 94 and they were doing it then. But they did but not it was routinely, just so hard to understand. Yeah. And they did not routinely test anything on these types of cases. Yeah. Because they just didn't have the technology to do it quickly and and efficiently. And and it required a really big sample. Right. And you had to be able to use this in a court of law to use it as evidence. And there were certain things that had to go through with it. And they just couldn't do it back then. It was in its infancy. It wasn't impossible, but it was really not. The technology was not where it is today. It's not ubiquitous like it is now. Yeah. So they're combing through the files on this and they find fingernail scrapings and a drop of blood from the door of the sob. Mm. Luckily, they had preserved this information at the time, knowing that they were going to be testing it in the future. Man. They had samples of this in the lab, and they had never been tested, and the police and the FBI are pushing to get these samples tested. However, they're unable to get them tested in an immediate, any kind of immediate fashion, this is a 10-year cold case, and it's just not a mm-hmm. priority for the crime lab. They've got mm-hmm. bigger fish to fry, according to their minds. Years pass. 2000, no, it wasn't until November in 2007 that the samples finally got tested wow. and results came back. So that's a long time. 
they initially got this <laughs> they initially got the samples in January 2002 but I mean the case was 94 but they pushed from 2002 five years to get those samples tested Gosh. that's incredible yeah and the police start looking over this case in a lot more detail again they discover that the mysterious anonymous letter was a dead end it was actually written by a co-worker who wanted to push police out of their inactivity oh so there's a red interesting hair. it didn't mean anything Blood scrapings from underneath the nails of the murder victim and the blood from the car come back as the same person. It is a man. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, though, Andre Jackson had moved out of California and police can't find him. Hmm. Oh. That's not sketchy at all. Yeah. But they do manage to track down his son, Andre Jackson Jr., and they get blood samples from him. And it pretty much shows that this is a match. How did they get blood samples from him? Like just they just asked him, and he consented. Yeah, this is enough for an arrest warrant, and the FBI fugitive task force goes and catches Andre Jackson in Tempe, Arizona, and arrest him. Mm. He seems super surprised by everything, and yeah, he probably got away with (laughs) it. He's like, "What?" And he's unable to make bail, so he has to stay in jail for a while. (laughs) <laughs> the case mm, kind of grind its way through the court system. In the meantime, they're starting to look at the inconsistent statements, the bruises that were on his face, the location around the, where the missing car was, and all of this seems suspicious, but they just don't think it's strong enough for a conviction. They need to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to take this to trial. They only get one bite at that apple, and they don't want to waste their chances unless they have a little bit more evidence, so they keep continuing to push to get more. Right. They also say that the DNA is not absolute proof either, despite the fact that it showed that that was Andre's DNA. The issue is, Andre and Marie were husband and wife, so it would not necessarily be unreasonable for his DNA to be, number one, in her car, and number two, under her nails. This did not mean... What about the blood? This didn't necessarily mean he killed her. And that amount of blood, it could be just a speck. He could have had a bloody nose. Oh. He could, there could be any number of reasons why his blood could potentially gotcha. be in her car. Okay. okay. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he killed right. her. They need more. They need a witness. They keep searching as the years pass. And Andre sits in jail for four years. Wow. <laughs> Boo-hoo. Yeah. Right? Um, in the meantime, the prosecution offers him a sweet plea bargain deal. They say, hey, dude, we'll let you plead guilty to manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter. And you only have to serve one more year in jail and then you can get out and you'll be you'll be good. But Andre, being the brainiac that he is, is like, hell no. I am absolutely certain the police don't have any evidence on me. Nope. Mm. I'm taking this to trial. So they take the case to trial. And here's kind of the theory of what the prosecutors say happened. They believe that there was an argument. Marie said she was leaving. The, tur- the argument turned violent, and at some point, Andre hit her and then decided to kill her because he couldn't let her get away and tell everyone that he had hit her. Right. So it's just kind of a spur-of-the-moment, rage-filled argument, and he just can't let her leave and tell Was everyone. there any violence before that we know of? Like, the kids say anything? I'm getting there. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This case has all kinds of twists and turns. (laughs) Remember how I said they need a witness earlier? I do. And they think no one has seen the actual crime. What can they do? It's the eight-month-old baby. No, it's not. (laughs) But there's actually a memory buried in Marcus's brain, 
And now he's an adult. He was only eight at the time that this happened and mm-hmm. didn't really remember it until later because he kind of blocked it out. Probably scared. Yeah. yeah. Uh, police interviewed Marcus Singleton in 2004 for the first time. And he's super conflicted. For the first time? Yeah. Right? I guess they kind of wrote him off because they didn't think he'd witnessed anything. I mean, there was no sign necessarily at the time that this happened that any violence happened. But they interview him in 2004, and he's super conflicted because he loves his stepfather. And even Mm. after all of this has happened, he doesn't believe that his stepdad did it. He misses his mom, but he just doesn't think that it's important for him to be involved in this case. And he ignores requests to be interviewed and ignores summons to go to court as a witness and kind of buries his head in the sand. You can't ignore a summons, right? That's illegal, isn't it? We're getting there. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. (laughs) Basically buries his head in the sand and the prosecutor gets him arrested because he doesn't doesn't respond to the summons. And they're like, the prosecutor didn't want to have to go there because he was like, this is not what I want to do. This kid is obviously a victim. We don't want to have to do this. But on yeah. the other hand, if he's not responding and this is the only witness that they have that could really make or break this case, they have to do something to kind of right. propel him forward. But Marcus remembers October 1st, 1994, six weeks before the murder. He heard screaming. He heard his mom and stepdad arguing in a bedroom violently. Okay. This hmm. is six weeks before the murder happened. Okay. How does he remember such a specific date? His mom tells him to call the cops. Oh. And... Andre is like, no, don't call the cops. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you've got one parent telling you one thing and another parent telling you another. Mm-mm. He can't do anything. He's eight. He doesn't know what's going yeah. on. He doesn't know what to do. I actually had a similar incident to this happen to me at about that same age as well. My mom with my stepdad. And they had got, they were going through a divorce, and he was a very extremely abusive person and he Mm. used to beat the crap out of my mom most of the time not in front of us but at the time they were going through a divorce my mom had moved us all into an apartment temporarily while they were getting the divorce and he Mm. came to our house once and he ripped the phone out of the wall and was like hitting my mom just beating the crap out of her and my mom was like go run get help get help and we're like seven eight five and we don't know what to do. And he's like, yeah, no, go, go back to bed. Yeah. So I actually went into the bedroom and crawled out the window and went and called the police. Wow. But I distinctly remember this instance and what it felt like. And to be a little kid and to have adults in a situation where you know something not right is going on, but being kind yeah. of frozen because one adult is telling you one thing and these are authority figures right. that you respect and love. And the other adult is telling you something completely different. And you just don't know what to do. Right. So there was that kind of a situation with him. Marie says that Andre hit her and Marcus hears that. She says, you hit me. And Andre was like, no, you hit me first. And she's screaming and telling yeah. her son to call the cops she and then at that point, Andre jumps on her and puts his hands over her mouth and one on her neck and they fall Ooh. onto the bed. Marcus takes that opportunity to run to the phone to call the police. And Andre kind of gets distracted when he sees Marcus running towards the, the phone. But Marie takes that chance to run to the kitchen to call the police. Mm-hmm. And he, Marcus can hear the two struggling in the hall. There's kitchen silverware clanging. They run back upstairs. Andre actually breaks the door down and gets, goes into the room, puts the door back on the hinges, closes the door, and there's silence. 
Oh, no. Now, the reason that we know the exact date of this instance is that Maria had actually called 911. Okay. So they have record of that 911 call, and it was cut off. Mm. So, for some reason, Andre had gotten her to drop the phone, or he'd ripped the cord out of the wall, whatever he needed to do to get her off the phone. But the cops came out to the house, and Marie told them everything was okay, Mm. and they left. Gosh. Which is, I think happens all the yeah, time. It's so common. Because you're in a situation, it's extremely stressful, you just want it to stop. Yeah. And you think in your mind that if you just say, okay, I'm I'm good, that it's gonna stop. And you don't understand that it's gonna continue to do this over and over and over again. You just think in your mind you're so hopeful that it will end mm-hmm. if you just tell the police to go away and that this was a one time thing. But it wasn't. Because six yeah. weeks later, Marie is dead. But Marcus feels this tremendous sense of guilt and responsibility. Even though he was only eight, he thinks it's his fault. Yeah. And that he should have protected her. And I can't imagine the kind of guilt and just horrific feelings that a child would go through if something Mm -hmm. like that happened to them. And I got lucky. My mom made it out. Yeah. She was a survivor. She, but Marie didn't. Yeah. And There really is no difference between these two women. This could have been my mom. And I can't imagine what I would have felt like if this was my mom that it happened to. I would feel just as bad, just awful. And then as well, he cannot reconcile the fact that this is his beloved stepfather Mm -hmm. and that he did this to his mom. I mean, this man had built a relationship with him over the years. I really honestly think that young minds can do some really strange things. And like, for example... My stepsisters do not believe to this day that their father ever did anything wrong or ever abused yeah. my mother. Never. Zero. Yeah. They refuse you to acknowledge it. of a lot when you're a kid. They refuse to acknowledge it. They refuse to acknowledge the sexual abuse that happened. And he was never prosecuted for any of this. Yeah. And they think that it didn't happen. Yeah. And they they've kind of believe, hey, this is the this man is amazing. He was a he's passed away since. And they just basically have turned him into this huge hero and mm-hmm. not, you know, because they've convinced themselves in their minds that this never happened because they didn't see there, it. Yeah, there's less internal struggle for them if they convince themselves otherwise. And this is not to say that they're bad people. I don't want to imply that in any way, shape or form. I love my stepsisters. They're all very loving, wonderful people, but they just have kind of dropped the ball on that one right. particular issue. And it's really, it's incredible. Anyway, um, Marcus doesn't want to testify against Andre and the subpoena that he was ordered and ignored. The prosecutors had arrested him, as I mentioned earlier, but eventually he gets up and testifies. And he only does this because he's afraid that his mother's murderer will walk free and justice will not be served. February 17th, 2012, 18 years after Marie's body is discovered, Andre goes on trial. Wow. And the prosecution doesn't know if Marcus is going to show up until the very last minute. And he is somewhat reluctant as a witness, but he did tell the story of the terrible fight between his mother and stepfather six weeks before her death. And this was a very, very powerful testimony. And then (laughs) Andre takes the stand. Of course he does. And now we all know (laughs) that's never a good sign. He basically gets up there and is like, hey, I, I had no involvement in this whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know what happened. 
We hadn't been fighting at all. Our marriage was great. Despite that argument six weeks prior, we'd never fought again. I greeted her with a hug the night that she disappeared. I kissed her. I left her at home to go to my son's football game. My lip was bruised because my son hit me with his helmet accidentally. I tried to call and page and everything. And it's just a coincidence that I was at the same park where her car was found. Right. Okay. Because we all know how many times it's just a coincidence. In L.A. (laughs) Right. Right. But prosecutors don't buy any of it for one single second. Of course. And... They said he would have had to drive past the exact same spot where the car was. It's just super shady. There's just no way he could have been coincidentally in the same area as her car and not seen the car. Right. No less. Right. And that the removal of the battery in the car ensured that he wanted the body to be found. Oh, I was going to ask about that. Okay. Right. And then, interestingly enough, when the police find the body, Jackson's already at the police station ready to be questioned, and he essentially throws himself onto the floor and starts screaming like a two-year-old having a tantrum. So he made sure the police saw him and grieving. Yeah, he just went ballistic, like way overboard with the emotional stuff. This outburst seems totally fake to them. And then within a matter of hours, he's spotted at a car wash later the same day, acting 100% normal like nothing happened. The investigators also find it odd that phone records show Jackson only made one call to his mic to his wife the night she went missing. Not multiple calls like he claimed. Right. And they believe that typical behavior would be to be blowing up this woman's phone trying to find her, and there was no sign of any of that on on Andre's part. Yeah. Witnesses and friends and family say that after the couple wed in early 1994, that Andre was extremely controlling and that the marriage was falling apart, despite the fact that he was like, oh yeah, our marriage was great. We were doing awesome. There was no divorce coming. Jackson claims the relationship was going very well. Of course he does. But friends of ja- <laughs> but friends of Jackson also say that he told them his wife was seeing another man. That it's going super great. So, yeah. So he's telling everyone different yeah. stories, which is just his typical thing. That's, that's yeah. him, right? Inconsistent stories from start to finish. A few days before Marie's death, she had told him she was working on an off-site location And he later found out that she had lied and took a day off. And this particular incident created a huge argument. Clearly, Andre was jealous, controlling, volatile, and violent. And this is a deadly combination, obviously. Interviews with friends and family also revealed that Marie had told them she was planning on leaving Andre. She had actually brought the kids all together and had a meeting with them, telling them that they were going to separate. Police believe that on the night of the murder, Marie told Andre that she definitely wanted to separate and that he responded by killing her. In the meantime, though, Jackson's like, oh, no, everyone's tainted. Everyone's against me. Family, friends, police, everyone. From the beginning, I didn't get a fair trial. Everything's wrong about this. (laughs) Everybody hates me. I don't know why. Sure. And Jackson's like, help me. But uh, the trial takes about three months, and the jury deliberates for about two and a half, maybe three hours tops, and comes back with a guilty verdict. Comes back with that guilty verdict. Surprise, surprise. He gets 25 years to life for the first-degree murder charge. And Marie's son, Marcus, is now trying to keep her memory alive. He's honoring her and trying to make her proud. But that is the case of Marie Singleton. And they said Marie, Marie Singleton Jackson, because that's his last name, but I say Marie Singleton. He doesn't deserve to have her Anyway, 
this is such an interesting case and the twists and turns and the CIA and then that's a red herring and you right. think, oh, well, maybe she was this. And she, then she, they, her car by the yeah. airport in that park was right next to LAX oh. and they thought, well, maybe she'd taken off and gone to like Russia or China. And so yeah. there were so many little like red herrings in this case that were yeah. obviously designed to draw the eye away and distract from the true killer. And we all know that nine times out of ten, it's the spouse or the hubby or the domestic partner or whatever. But right. For just one time, you wanted it to be like, oh, look, there's all this cool stuff going on. Right. And it is a crazy story. It's an absolutely crazy story. But, you know, the fact that the son heard it and didn't recall those memories and it just is absolutely fascinating and interesting to me. And this is a a woman who, by all accounts, was incredibly intelligent and loving and wonderful and kind. And she was beautiful and she was a great mom. It just... None of it makes sense to me. And, and the, the husband did such a great job of hiding this volatility from everyone. But then when, you know, you unfold it, it just the layers of the onion just keep revealing more and more. Right. I think that's pretty typical for people that are super violent like that. Like you hear about that. Like it's always a relationship that ha- like progresses very quickly. And you always find out later that one of them was like the the violent one was super, super controlling, you know, and then but and then it's always like he had he did such a good job of hiding it. Nobody ever saw this coming. You know, I think it's just it's some kind it's some kind of characteristic like you don't want to see it or they do such a good job of hiding it. I don't know. It's just it's such a common story. I think it's also very. It's very important to note that there is a misconception that the only types of women that get involved in situations like this are oh, less no, intelligent no, or, no, yeah. you know, maybe poor, poor or like uneducated or, you know, from bad backgrounds no, or from a lower socioeconomic group. And there's nothing to indicate, there's yeah. nothing to indicate any of that happened in this case. This woman, by all accounts, was extremely intelligent. She was career oriented. Yeah. She had everything going for her and she still got stuck with this. Yeah. Mm. It, this monster. It, it happens to everybody. Like it's it just not, doesn't seem fair. Yeah, it's and you're right. There is that misconception, and a lot of people make those assumptions. And the unfortunate thing is, it's just it, it's it's so pervasive. It's just terribly pervasive. I think it's also really really important to note that if you suspect somebody that you love or know is going through a situation like this, that you report this. Absolutely. You don't have to do it to their face. You don't have to say your name. You can do it anonymously, but get Absolutely. help. Absolutely. Help help them to get help because this is the outcome if they don't get help and no one knows about it and it's hidden. Right. I'm not saying every time this is the outcome, but this is the kind of stuff that happens when people don't report these sorts of things. And there are ways to do it anonymously, and there are ways that you can let people know that something bad is going on. And I think sometimes people hide it so well from Mm -hmm. everyone that you can't report it. And that's just, it is what it is. But I think the incident that happened with the police department and that, you know, I'm almost positive that she probably told people about that. You know, I was... I was, yeah, I was thinking about that when you were talking about it. And the other thing that kind of just, just came to me is, you know, when police come by, they don't come into your house. They come with the lights on and they talk to you outside. Your neighbors are going to poke their heads out. You just want to get rid of them as quickly as you can because you don't want people to start in, their, yep. in your neighborhood, start talking about why were the police there? You know, like that's an embarrassing situation if the police have to come to your home. So in the interest of just getting the police off your doorstep, 
she could have yeah. said, no, everything's fine. You know what I mean? Like, there's all kinds of reasons yeah. that that could have happened the it's way that it did. It really is. And this family lost this woman. It is. Just it's very, very sad. But um, we're going to go ahead and wrap the case up for the yeah. evening, unless you have anything else to add. I don't. I was going to say we'll post, um, like, links to websites and a 1-800 number on our social media. If you or somebody you know is experiencing domestic violence, that way you can have a resource there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that all of us have either experienced it or seen someone who's been involved in it at some point or another. Mm -hmm. If you haven't, then you must be living under a rock because you literally see it every day. And it's it's terrifying. And just in the span of my lifetime, I've probably seen it a dozen times. Yeah. Including been in having been in a situation myself. And luckily, I never was physically abused, but, I mean, I think that that would have come if I would have stayed. Right. I've been fortunate to never have been in an abusive relationship, but, um, like you said, I know people that have. I mean, it's it's horribly common. Yeah. I think everybody knows somebody or has gone through it themselves. Way more common than it should be. But, anyway, right. um, we're going to post some information into the show notes for you guys. We'll also post it, like Darcy said, on our social media. If you have something to say or if you want to share something, please, by all means, share with us. We'd love to open this dialogue up and make it less of a thing where you feel like you need to hide. It doesn't need to be right. co- covert. It doesn't need to be embarrassing. It happens to all of us. We right. just we need to open up the dialogue and pe- have people not be embarrassed about it. Absolutely, I agree. Okay, um, and this is the point in the podcast where we say so long for a well. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And folks, this is so incredibly important to us to have you guys rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps us get rankings in the charts. It helps us develop better programming. It helps us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and just be better overall. And you can also send us emails. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We'd be more than happy to respond to your emails, read them on the show, etc. Social media? We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And go ahead and you can DM us or tweet at us, whatever you yeah. want to do there. We're going to post some pictures from this interesting case. There's pictures of the flyers. There's pictures of the people involved in the case. And it's so very interesting but please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild cases good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your very best life bye bye guys <laughs>